You're listening to Beyond the Ordinary, a show about the companies, founders, and ideas that are shaping the future of health, science, and financial technology. Here's your host, Tommy Martin. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Beyond the Ordinary. And today, we absolutely have an episode for you that is beyond the ordinary. We are going to talk about real estate. We're going to talk about rebuilding communities. And we are also going to talk about rebuilding marriages. Today, I have with me two very special guests and new friends and listeners. This is the first time we've ever done this with two guests on the show at the same time. So I'm really honored to have John and Ash Marsh with us today. They run Marsh Collective, where they have absolutely done some incredible work in many, many communities throughout America. You're going to hear about that today, how they've absolutely turned these communities around with incredible people and an incredible process. But way more importantly, from my perspective, is that they have done it in a way to actually grow their marriage and grow their faith And it's amazing for me to hear them talk about each other. Before we start recording, I always ask, how do you want to be introduced to our listeners? And my favorite part with John and Ash is how they introduced each other. So listen to this. John says, Ash is everything he's ever dreamed of in a woman that is the weakest, strong person he's ever met and has just incredible examples. You're going to hear about those today. And when Ash talks about John, He is the most faithful person she knows. He's just absolutely brilliant and works so hard, not for his own gain, but really to be a blessing to others. And she says, there's no one else that's more tenacious about having hope in people. And that just makes him an incredible mentor, incredible friend, lifetime partner, and Ash's favorite human in the world. And ultimately, what I love is that they as a couple are 100% ambassadors of hope. And you are going to hear that story today. So John and Ash, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having a story that is just absolutely beyond the ordinary. I know our listeners are going to get so much out of this. Thank you. It's great to be here. Hey, glad to be here. I say, let me tell you what I think she is, Tommy. I say, I'm like a bottle rocket. And if Ash ain't here, it's got its stick snapped off. Lots of power, no direction. So Ash brings a direction to the power. So John and Ash, our listeners, more so than hearing about a specific investment, and and we'll get to that on the way that you're absolutely developing and bringing back life into communities all over America. We'll get to that. But my experience is our listeners absolutely love knowing people's stories, and your story is arguably the most beyond the ordinary story we've heard yet on this show. That's why you are such ambassadors of hope. So if you're willing, take our listeners back to the days before this business really came together, your marriage really came together. And for a lot of our listeners that aren't at that pinnacle of success at this stage, help them understand where you guys started from. Well, you know, my mom tried for 13 years to have a child, couldn't, adopted me, and 18 months later had my little brother. So I was super spoiled because she said for 10 years, all I did was look at that empty baby carriage wanting to be a mama and said, that's all I ever wanted to be. And so they began telling me since I was a little kid, you can do anything. You're a world changer. You know that, don't you? You can do anything. And I believed them. 
obeyed my parents up until 13 years old, AB honor roll, and then stepped off the track of doing what they wanted and rebelled against my God, my parents, I felt, and had sex with a little girl that was my girlfriend that was 12. And from that time started rebelling. Rebelled till I was 17 years old. First time I tried drugs. And once I tried them, I liked them and went off in that and was a drug addict till I was 23 years old. Met Ash when I was 19 or so. The guy I was working with, I had a shop behind this Jewish guy's business. And he said, that girl you're dating's not wife material. Let me find your wife. So he said, I'm going to find your wife. I thought he's kidding. And he bet Ash $500. She couldn't take me away from the girl I was dating. And that's how I met her. And he's right. I got me a good one. But still, wait, 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 wait. Ash, did you actually take this bet? Absolutely. So this is where it started. I'm very competitive. Yes, I won him on a bet. Before you wanted John, you wanted the $500. No, no one's ever asked me that. No, I wanted John. Okay. The 500 was the bonus. The reason why I wasn't chasing after John is because he had a girlfriend. And I was just always taught you don't mess with, you know, fellas that have girlfriends. So anyway, but yeah, the 500 absolutely was the greatest carrot he could put in front of my dangle in front of me because I was... So I grew up pretty poor and was just a hardworking gal and didn't have a lot of resources. It's like, you mean I can get a guy and $500? It's a bonus. Sign me up. And so anyway, but he engineered us to get together. But once we started dating, didn't take us all, move in together and got married. After being married six months, she didn't know I was a drug addict and didn't really find out till after we were married. Six months after being married, we found out we were pregnant with our son because she got pregnant on birth control and I was upset. It's like, how does this happen? She's like, what do you mean? How does it happen? And I realized birth control is only like 99% effective. So like if you do it a hundred times, you're sunk. The system is there. <laughs> so we got pregnant. And then I had been a bad husband. I didn't know how to love her. All I did was get her and check the box and move on. And I love business. So I destroyed my marriage and it ended up pushing Ash away. So that at 23 years old, I was a million and a half dollars in debt. $99,000 overdrawn. I was hooked on meth and in a business that was having problems. And Ash left me for one of our employees who happened to be one of our banker's sons and my whole life fell apart. Wow. There's so much I want to unpack in that statement, John. One of the questions I was going to ask previously was, Ash, at what point did you figure out that John was using drugs? I knew that he was doing what I would guess you'd call recreational drugs, like smoking pot and everything. And I was tolerable of that. I didn't know that he was doing um, like meth and different things such as that until after we reconciled our marriage. He hid that from me. I knew he had erratic behavior and he had some things about him that were hard to deal with, but I never knew that that's what it was. I found out after. So even as you were feeling pushed away, you still at that point didn't realize there was this actual drug problem that went beyond recreational use. Mm -mm. No, I didn't. When he calls himself a workaholic and that he, you know, separated himself from marriage and relationships and everything, he literally would work over 24 hours and just the behavior that it was causing. Now that looking back on that, now that I understand that it was just a lot of, you know, just anger and frustration, just volatile with his words. He was never like physically volatile, but definitely just a lot of angst and just mad. And he was either sleeping or he was working his time behind off and avoiding being in any form of relationship. He was just getting it done, you know, to the best of his ability, I suppose. 
And one of the things that I've really come to believe in having lots and lots of friends go through affairs in their marriage and things of that nature, I have yet to meet one that was really, they just set out looking for that, you know, that leaped headfirst saying, oh, I can't wait to go just put my marriage at risk, cheat on my spouse. It's always been more of like a slow burn. It started with a conversation and somebody actually just paid attention to you. And that hadn't happened in a while. And then they said something nice and it's an innocent, wow, you look really nice today, but it means so much because there's this void that's happening. And so I guess my question for you, is that a similar for you? Did you go out looking for an affair or did it just kind of grow into one? I did not go out looking for one. I do not believe that anyone trips and falls into that ditch either. But it did start in a a relational way as far as like someone paying attention, someone laughing, someone seeing you, someone thinking you're interesting. You know, they were happy to see you or, you know, excited to see you at times and just having conversation, really, someone just to hang out with. And, you know, the thing is that I really, like I said, I don't believe you fall into that ditch. It's really that's a slippery slope to think, oh, okay, well, it just happened innocently. We still make choices. I believe we validate our choices with the hurts that we have. And that's what had happened with me. I had felt so neglected and so hurt and obviously alone. And honestly, when I first met John, the void that he filled in my life of always wanting to be seen and wanting to be appreciated and seen as beautiful or whatever, he filled that. And when he took it from me, it gave such a large void in my life that, I mean, I really think I would have had conversations with somebody at the grocery store if I could have, you know? So I was literally in a desert and it was like a cup of cold water to me. But the moment I stepped over that line, I knew it. It was devastating feeling. It was rotten feeling. But then it was a place where I had felt like I had already stepped over too far and I couldn't come back. And it just got bigger than what I realized it could get. And John, you said this was an employee of yours. Yeah. And so what happened when this all came about, I ended up, you know, the pressure of that kept driving me. And what I kept hearing is kill yourself, kill yourself, kill yourself. And what I believe God was saying is die to yourself, die to yourself, die to yourself. I kept hearing, take your life, take your life. And I believe God was going, lay your life down, lay your life down. And so it was perverted, twisted truth driving me in these circumstances because I didn't know she was the most important thing until she left. A lot of times you don't know what's the important thing until you lose it. But then once I lost her, I realized that nothing else I was fighting for mattered. You know, John, I appreciate you sharing that you hit that rock bottom place where, as you said, you were telling yourself, kill yourself, kill yourself. And you talked about the pressures that had kind of mounted. And, uh, you know, on one hand, you're losing your wife. What else? What were the other pressures that were all mounting? I know there was debt. Was the business doing okay? Or the business was having problems. We're $99,000 overdrawn. My partner, I felt he had betrayed me in so many ways. And I looked up to him. The drugs was driving me. The debt was driving me. And we had refinanced our business in a way that really was not good. I feel like refinancing oftentimes or consolidation loan is one big loan to take care of a bunch of small loans you can't pay, to make one big loan you can't pay. And so it was all these things driving us. We're upside down. 
And, you know, if you don't like what you're reaping, you should be talking to the person handling the planting. And so I've been planting corn and I wasn't getting apples. You know, I had not planted in my marriage and I was reaping a harvest from it. I had mishandled the finances and I was reaping a harvest from it. I was abusing myself with drugs and alcohol, harvest from it. And so God put laws in place that we reap what we sow. We also reap more than we sow and reap it later than we've sown it. You don't plant a kernel and get a kernel back, you get a stalk. And so that was starting to catch up with me. And what I realize is when the pressure comes on us, the frustration and the suffering, we either have to try to find a way to cope with it and scurry back up the funnel, get a new wife, a new life and a new car and a new tan and try it all again, right back down to the bottom. Or if it hurts too bad and costs too much, you do what really I went in the attic of my house to hang myself. And when I went up there in that attic of that house, I had the rope, I had it all set up, moved an old attic fan out of the way old plywood floor. And I wasn't scared of dying. I was really scared of living. And I was scared that the rope may not hold and I'd be somehow maimed, but not dead. And I got down on that old plywood floor. I didn't walk an aisle and pray a prayer. I got down on that floor and started crying out to a God I'd never met before. And pow, like lightning hit me. Every hair on my body stood up and he poured love on me. And for two solid hours, I couldn't lift my pinky off the floor. And like a syringe, all the suffering from the bottom of my toes to the top of my head come out. And for the first time in my life, love got past the fence. And I ain't never been the same since. I've been shook up as a Coke bottle. I got out of that place. I got more. I was like, oh, this is awesome. Went downstairs and Ash was there. We'd just been fighting. I was like, I got saved. And she's like, you're a liar. I said, no, no, I'm serious. I got saved. I met God. I'm not a drug addict anymore. Drugs left me. I didn't quit them. They quit me. And she's like, you're a liar. And there we were. And so I walked right back into the mess I came out of. But my entire life did shift. And what I knew was different is the things I longed to do, I didn't long to do anymore. And hope got past offense. Hope is the sign of God's goodness in our life. Desperation and destitution is stuff delivered from the wrong side of the fence. But hope only comes from one place, true hope. I've been crazy ever since. Man, this has been a journey that looks like a detour ever since I got struck by lightning up there. And not everybody goes through that, and it's not the best way, but God knows what idiots need. And that's a supernatural plan for idiots. It's like his niche market. Absolutely. And listeners, I'm glad you can't see me right now because I have tears streaming down my face just hearing this story. And, you know, as a student of the Bible, what we see over and over and over is God using screw ups to do big, big things. And that is certainly the story of my life. You know, we'll unpack more of that at some point here. But it's one thing for John to experience it, but let's now go back and we're picturing Ash on the sidelines who's been neglected and John comes down and Ash is just like, uh, no. (laughs) And so Ash, how did it eventually come around that? No, like he is different. Something has changed this man. Well, (laughs) Because when John's all in, whether it's with drugs or cars, whatever it might be, when John's all in, he's all in. And he never shifted from what he said was true when he came down the steps. And whenever he said that I'm different and God has changed me and drugs don't have a hold on me anymore. And what I call him a liar is because I based it off of what he had always been in the past. 
I had no idea that there was really a God that could change someone just by meeting him, you know, because I had gone to church my whole life. And I think I got baptized every time they would open up the little pool. I mean, I would let them slam dunk me. I mean, I over a dozen times and it never changed anything, you know, and I grew up in a hard life and I changed that life to come into another life that was just as hard. And I could not comprehend why it was that I never had felt that same thing, but I just kept doing what I was doing. And so what brought a hold of me was John is radically different. He's engrossed in following after the truth. And he wasn't trying to make a religion of it. He was trying to find healing and trying to find truth and hope and wanted real change. And he wanted to be a different man. He wanted to love me. He wanted to serve me. He wanted to be different. And you could see it. But it took me a few months for me to realize that he wasn't, you know, like playing around or playing me or trying to manipulate me. You know, when you're in those situations, we're going through divorce while this was happening also. So we had decided to reconcile. He had gone to a promise keepers conference and he called me from the conference, which is a whole nother story. He can tell you if he'd like <laughs> these men that he met there. That was one of the craziest situations ever. But they encouraged him to call me and ask me to come home, come home from work, come home from the affair, come home from everything. He and I, like I said, we were going through the divorce at the time. And so basically that was me being willing to trust him after having living the years of him not being trustworthy and or me as well. And so I said, yes, I have no idea why I said yes. I had never really agreed with him or said yes to him for anything he had wanted before. So for it to pop out of my mouth was like, dang, I just said that. And he was probably just as surprised I said it. And so anyway, I did. I came home. I left where I was working which was not a good environment for me to be in. And I came home just to be a wife to him and a mother to our child. So about three months later, we found out that I'm pregnant. And to us, we thought it was great. This is what you're supposed to do. You reconcile your marriage, you play the part, and then, you know, you start all over again. But the problem was that I didn't know whose child it was because I was still holding on to this other relationship just in case, you know, John was playing me for whatever reason. You know, when you're going through a divorce, one of the hardest things, honestly, you've got your own things you're dealing with, all the hurt you've done to each other. But when you bring in outside voices into that relationship that don't really have hope at all, they have hope that you'll write them a check so that they can keep on doing what they're doing. And I don't mean to criticize lawyers. They're doing their job of what they were hired to do. But whenever they're speaking to you in the midst of that, all they're telling you is the things that your spouse is still lying to you about. So Every day I would hear, you know, everybody plays the religion card. Everybody says they're different. He's just trying to get you to soften up so he can hit you as hard as he can, basically. So that's all that I kept hearing from him and friends and everybody else. Found out in November, though, at about eight weeks that I had a miscarriage. I didn't find out. I experienced a miscarriage and it was really, really hard. That was my breaking point of just tormenting myself and tormenting him and everyone that was in my life. I was an absolute disaster. Everywhere I went, I hurt people. How did that actually show up, Ash? Like, what does that mean? Well, because to live that type of life that I was living, you have to lie. And see, there I was, I was accusing him of being the greatest liar of all, yet I was living the biggest lie. And so every day I would put on my face and go to church and do all the things. And yet here I was, I was the hypocritical liar. And so when you lie to people over and over again, the ones that are closest to you and you 
demand of them to love you in a way that's just completely trusting and respectful and honoring and all those things, you just destroy those relationships. I put my parents in a situation to where, I mean, to choose to love me and to not lose me, they chose not to to confront me in the lies I was in, you know, and that breaks my heart that I did that. I did that to them and my friends and people I worked with. It's just heartbreaking. And ultimately, I mean, I did it to my son. Uh, He was young at the time, but still the fact that I would even have him with me at times, not when I did anything blatantly, but just even like hanging out with this other guy and whether it's just meeting at the park or whatever, still it was wrong. It was so wrong. And it was so abusive of those relationships. But, you know, God has a, he has such a bigger plan than what we um, can understand. And like John said a minute ago, when it hurts too bad and it costs too much, and we all have our individual price that we know what it is. We might not know what it is until we get up to the place that we have to pay it. But whenever we're there, we know if it's cost too much and definitely if it's hurt too bad. And that's when that surrender happened for me is whenever I was sitting there looking at my husband who had changed his life and was so faithful to God and to me and to be different and to love me. And I'm sitting on the edge of the table with my child's little hand on my leg telling me I was going to be okay. And I knew I wasn't. And um, yeah, that's a game changer when you hear the people that you love the most loving you and telling you that they support you and care for you and they don't realize you're still trapped in this lie. And so God was the only one that could hear me in the midst of that. And I was angry at myself. I was angry at him. But surrender was all he needed from me. He didn't really need anything else but for me to surrender. And he knew that was, you know, it's such a simple word, but it takes everything you have to give it. And that was the breaking point for me whenever I was sitting there, knowing that I had lost this other child and praying that it wasn't because I had done something so wrong. But yeah, it was just, it was hard. You guys have been so generous to share and be vulnerable with our listeners in your story. This isn't something I've talked about on our show before, but my moment of surrender, Ash, was my boys were probably four and two. And, you know, I was going on many years in business and I became an overnight success after a decade of failure. My first business was mediocre. Second was mediocre. Third was a disaster. Fourth, I didn't know it yet, but it was going to take off and go nationwide and just skyrocket like a hockey stick. But I didn't know it at the time. And we were $250,000 in credit card debt, which this is back in the days you could still accomplish that. And my wife knew very little of it because in my mind, I was protecting her from that. Although in hindsight, she knew about it because she could see I was wearing it day in and day out and really found myself at this point of saying, I can't do it. And so I'm in my kid's bedroom. I've read them stories. They're now asleep and they have two beds, you know, on both sides of the room. And I found myself sitting there truly believing they would be better off with my life insurance money instead of me. And so it was that point of, you know, really the pinnacle of my depressive state, realizing like my family would be way better off financially if I were dead. And obviously that was a lie that I was telling myself, but in the moment, I absolutely believed it. But I looked at those little boys and just, fell to my knees. And, you know, I found faith in Christ in high school, but certainly not turned over my business to him or my family or my behavior, a lot of things. And 
just found myself on my knees saying, God, I can't do this without you. Like I can't. And it was very similar to the experience you described, John, of just ultimately having this sense of peace come over me and a peace that really there's no way to understand it. Absolutely no way to understand it. It came over me and went back and repaired the damage I'd caused in my marriage. I have a wife like yours, John, that was just incredibly forgiving and supportive and got to work on doing the right things in the business. And then sure enough, it just took off, exploded nationwide in a way that I never could have dreamed of. And I just share that because listeners, I want you to hear, you're hearing this from John, you're hearing it from Ash, you're hearing it from me. And we've all hit this point of incredible success in what we're doing from a, you know, from an investment perspective and outside looking in perspective. But a lot of times you don't see all the pain and the hurt and those hard times that came with it. And it goes back to all three of us really believe God uses the most screwed up people to accomplish really, really big things for him. So I know for some of you listening, you know, faith, Jesus, all that stuff, it's not your thing. That's totally fine. We're still glad you're here, even if it's not. But we do want to share, this is what God's done in our lives. He's taken three total screw-ups, as you can hear, and uh, just accomplished really big things through us. So I wanted to interject that. John, you had a great way of saying what it takes to get to that point where you're ready for your life to be turned around. Yeah, you know, we had to define, like, you know, when people change. And over the years, Ash and I have helped reconcile now over 200 broken marriages. And you comfort others with the same comfort you've been comforted with. You know, I wouldn't want anybody doing brain surgery on me that didn't and have a lot of experience. And so there's very few people, honestly, that, that take and can help people find hope and beauty from broken things. You know, if one wealthy guy said, how do you, he was sharing, he said, how did you get so wealthy? He said, one thing, I just didn't get divorced. And some people get divorced two or three times. You know, divorce, drugs, and distractions are the three Ds that destroy people's potential. So I'd say try to stay married with who you're with and make it good. And that'll help your financial thing good 30, 40, 50% right there, even if you don't make a whole lot more. But what we realized is, as people, we don't change unless it hurts too bad and costs too much, unless we know enough we want to, or unless the pain of changing is less than the pain of staying the same. Now, I choose the hard way. This is a journey that looks like a detour. And I always seem to have picked the ways that when the defecation hits the ventilation is when I change, when there's big problems. And, you know, something about it, maybe you lost your spouse and it it wasn't the hardest. Everybody's got a thing. But mine was Ash and our son. When they left and I lost access to him and her, I knew that everything else didn't matter. We say, if you're going to build a great company, we care about companies, communities and couples. And we say, if you're a couple, there are five things we focus on. Faith, family, fun, fitness, and finance. And we've got a sophisticated plan for all five. Now, if you show me your plan for your money, I bet it's probably a little bit better than your plan for your family or for your faith or for your fun. And I'm just saying, why? I mean, why would we have a whole team around our money? I got investors, lawyers, protectors, guiders, 
people is helping every little thing. But then I, what about your family? Oh, nothing. I said, man, are you crazy? I mean, marriage is complicated. I mean, when you have trouble in your marriage, it's like, think about it. If you have trouble with your automatic transmission, you don't try to fix it yourself. And I can fix an automatic transmission and marriage is more complex, right? And so we need help. We need a plan. The Bible says man plans his ways, then God orders his steps. And you don't hardly build a doghouse without a plan. And this is more complicated. So Ash and I work hard to pull business principles down into our work. And we want to be a high-impact couple that have a vision for our future. And you know, if the promise is clear, the price is easy. If the promise is fuzzy, no price is cheap enough. And so if you knew you could have everything you ever dreamed of in a woman, like in your wife, did you think she was hot, have eyes for one lady, she'd make all your dreams come through and help you do projects. And I love that I can talk to Ash about the waterfall in a deal and how we're going to be LP or GP, and then we can go to bedroom. All that stuff tied together is like supernatural. A lot of our listeners don't even know what you meant by waterfall. They're thinking <laughs> a fountain of some kind. <laughs> well, and when you said LPGP, it was, you know, my love language. But listeners, what, <laughs> what John's talking about is that he gets to do business day in and day out with his wife. She knows this jargon from the investment world. Like she knows what he's actually talking about. And then he still gets to be romantic and they still get to have a family and have fun together. One thing too about it is I can talk to Ash about deals. And, you know, I used to think most marriages have one person in it that I would talk to Ash about my dreams and she would ask penetrating questions that would kill it. I said, you're a dream squisher. I said, that's what you are as a dream squisher. I share my dreams with you and you squish them. I said, man, I want to build this. I got this big thing I want to do and waving my arms. And she's like, how are you going to pay for it? Who's going to insure that? Where do you think we're going to get somebody? And she would be asking all these logistics things. I said, this is like going in the bedroom and we got it real set up nice with candles. Lights are real good and everything's going real good. Then you flip on a bunch of fluorescent lunchroom lights. I said, you're killing the mood on this thing. I said, I was getting all excited. And I said, nobody gets pregnant without excitement. And I said, you got to give me the chance to get through my idea before you squish them. And not that she was doing anything that, or that I was doing anything wrong. We just didn't understand one another's gifts. And we didn't have a proper place and timing. Because the difference in a home run and a foul ball is timing. As playful as you hear me be, I also have a side of me that can be very serious. And when I ask questions, they come across a little bit like an interrogation. And so anyhow, I have learned that John doesn't like those type of questions. So I just phrase them a different way. I was like, if we were doing this, what would be a way that you would think would be a great way to pay for it? Or we at least quarantine the vision time and the details time. And one thing I said, now, when I'm visioning, I like two questions. And two comments like, hmm, interesting. Tell me more. <laughs> How could we make this bigger? Right. And I'm like, oh, man, just keep saying that. This is working. <laughs> yeah. And I may just please tell me where our destination is and I'll help us get there. Like that's, that's right. actually why I'm asking questions, which this is a totally different thing that John is talking about. But it's a huge game changer in relationships when you understand if you are a present or a future voice and how you're getting your information and why you're getting your information. And so if you understand that about each other as a husband and wife, 
game changer. Well, because you marry your compatible opposite yeah. usually. Absolutely. And so you just want to try to make them like you. And so we were missing one another and the power of each other's voice in our deal. And like I said, we built over 60 companies through our time together in marriage, almost 30 years this year. And we've done over 285 structures in 10 blocks in our city and love 10 square blocks for 25 years. And now we steward towns all over America. We give hope to small towns. You know, what if you could view a historic downtown like a complex mixed-use development? And what if that could actually be irreplaceable real estate and most of us not know it in dead towns? And so we bring hope to these places that'll make your Sunday school teacher happy and your economics teacher happy. And that ain't easy. John, you're talking about the work that you both have come together to do to bring back communities in such a really powerful way. So it's a perfect segue. Really appreciate you sharing your life story. I think it's absolutely beyond the ordinary and it it just gives hope to so many people to know that you can go from a marriage that's on the verge of divorce. You're talking to divorce attorneys and they're in your ear every day saying, this person's lying to you. You need to end this as fast as possible. And yet you can still come back from that because it's never too late to start doing the right thing. It's never too late. So, Tommy, we've helped reconcile a bunch of people that already had that paperwork done. The paperwork's just paperwork. All right. If you're divorced and you want your spouse back, you got the best chance of dating them at all. You know all the deals. So just I'd say, listen, they're coming back probably. Just make sure you're ready. Make sure you're living the kind of life they want to join. Like build a life your ex-spouse would love and ask them to join you in it. Because I'm telling you, every desire of a spouse is for a godly spouse. People long to have a good, godly person that loves them. You the gas pump for love, you ain't going to be running out of customer. I'm telling you, they're going to want to come back. So there's hope for every marriage, every single marriage. We've seen ones you, we could tell you stories you will not believe. I'm telling you, people that their spouse left them for their pastor and their lives have been put back together. People that just, you can't imagine over 200 broken marriages reconciled so far. And shoot, Lord willing, no telling how long we live and as high energy and low IQ as I am, there's bound to be more. I love it. I love it. Listeners, we're actually going to take a quick detour. So Ash actually has to jump off for a business meeting. But Ash, before you go, first, thank you for being here. Thank you for being so open and vulnerable with your story. And I know people need to hear it. You are welcome. Thank you for having me. It's been my honor. You know, John, you were talking about the company and the work you guys are doing in these communities. And it's just absolutely been incredible. I want to segue into that. But just for context, how long ago was it when you and Ash reconciled and really started to rebuild your marriage? How many years ago was that? About 25 years ago or so. Okay. So you've been married for 30 years. So we were only three or four years in when this happened. But we've helped reconcile people that have been married 25 years. I'm working with a couple that just got divorced that uh, have been married 50 years. They were worth half a billion dollars, got divorced and destroyed their kids and their grandkids and their great grandkids. And so we're trying to help them see if they could figure out how to love one another again. I love it. I love it. But you don't just do that in marriages. As you talked about it, it was the three C's couples, communities, and companies. So let's talk about the communities side of that. 
And then that ties in the companies as well. So what we began to do is love our town. And we say we do sophisticated real estate development with love. I mean, it's to make your Sunday school teacher and your economics teacher happy that I mentioned. And that's powerful because people often don't believe you can do both. And we do. I mean, we build irreplaceable places. And we say that it's stewardship of a place. And sometimes we're called to a place. Like we love 10 square blocks and we're putting everything we got into loving that place and making it flourish. Our definition of flourishing is when people who have the least are experiencing the most, it's flourishing. And see, we come into a place and we say, what if you treated a downtown like ours and you thought about it like a complex mixed-use development? What all would you need in it? How would you do it? And so our clients, the largest town we're working in is Winter Haven, Florida, and our clients, their portfolio is about $250 million. We raised $100 million from 60 locals, and people are investing into their community in this community development fund, and they're saving their city. The smallest town we're in is 800 people in Kentucky, a little town called Bloomfield. And so all kinds of towns in between, from Alito, Illinois, to Moments, Illinois, to Midland, Texas, to Stanford, Kentucky. Newtown just came on the other day, Hogansville, Georgia. So what the commonality is, is people are saying, I love the place I live and I can't stand to see it the way it is anymore. And so they think fixing their town is impossible. And we take them to possible and give them a plan and show them how to do it, give them the tools and walk alongside them and make it probable. And so what we say is we work in irreplaceable real estate. Now, two things I'd tell you about the real estate we work in. Number one, I believe we're building a new asset class of real estate. We've had commercial real estate. We've had residential real estate at scale, multifamily. We believe ours is a new asset class of people who long to see small towns saved and plan on stewarding the whole town in some cases. So we think we're forwards that and we're doing it at scale. But secondly, it's irreplaceable. And you say, well, John, why do you call it irreplaceable? I said, well, because the structures were built by people who don't live anymore, with materials we don't have anymore, and methods we don't do anymore, and entitlements and approvals we can't get anymore. So that's a tremendous opportunity. And so we're building these real estate portfolios that can be enduring. And we're asking ourselves one compelling question. What could we do? for the good of our city that would last 50 years and no one be able to undo it. And then we go big on that. And John, you didn't start out doing this for lots of communities. You started out doing it for your own community. So tell us about that. Well, just the hope that everything you go through is important in where you're going to. If Ash and I didn't go through the brokenness in our marriage and I find hope out of it, I never would have seen hope in broken buildings and broken people. But it's everywhere. And what was that town where you got started? We still live here. We got a lifetime commitment. We're going to die right here. Opelika, Alabama. So think Hopelika, Alabama, O-P-E-L-I-K-A. And so we love this place and we're committed to stewarding it for as long as we're here. And then our oldest son and our youngest have begun to get interested. We told them before, we said, we're going to probably give all the money we make away. I said, we don't want y'all to think you are born on third base and think you hit a triple. I said, if you're going to do something with this, you're going to have to steward it or we're going to give it all away and try to make the last check we write bounce. But now our boys are coming along. I believe they're getting a heart for this work and being faithful. And as long as they'll be faithful, then they could probably steward it too. So what we've done is we've 
bought up a group of real estate within a very small area and we try to use it for good to make it productive. I mean, we believe real estate should give you the return on your investment and the return of your investment. And we also believe we don't personally encourage building things like this out of benevolence. We think you don't want a fig tree that don't make figs. I mean, a good thing about a fig tree is it makes figs. And so real estate should create, in our opinion, social, spiritual, and economic capital, and we ought to be able to measure it. So, John, in Opelika, you've done over 285 structures over 10 blocks in the community and helped start over 60 businesses. So how does the company aspect come into play here? Well, the company aspect, so we built all these companies. We still have five companies. We're in real estate, real estate development, real estate leasing. We own real estate, of course. There's an ownership role. We have a consulting and coaching company that does the work in other cities and creates content around that. And then we have an event business that's an operational business within our community. So We steward our companies, but we also speak into companies. A lot of our clients came to us because they have a large company and they are in a small town and it's dying and they see it as a method of recruitment for their company and their town as something they long to do because they don't want to live in a place they don't like being. And then number three is that that they could make a difference and make a place that maybe their children and grandchildren want to live. And we call it an MVP, a minimum viable plan for a place. We can't build a place that's flourishing without two things that we have to have. Number one is iconic food and beverage. We've got to have great food somewhere because nobody goes anywhere and says, man, I tell you what, I love going to that place doesn't have any good food or horrible overnight stay. Nobody wants to go there. We go in and oftentimes we'll build iconic hospitality businesses to make a place flourish and then overnight stay. So that's what we do and make these places alive in an identity. We ask three questions you always have to ask if you're going to make a place grow. Who are you? Who do you serve? And who's going to pay for it? If you don't know who you are, you don't know who you serve. Nobody's going to want to pay for it because I can tell you something. Money does not come after vision. Vision comes first and money follows. And the reason no money has been put into these places is because they don't have a vision. And where there's no vision, people perish. So if that's true, then vision is the answer for perishing predicaments. And so we have this idea that we can get a vision, we can bring it together. And so if you know who you are, like I would be a horrible Tommy, I struggle enough being a John. And so you got to figure out who you are as a town, not Silicon Valley of the South. That's not going to work. Be who you are. If you're a five foot tall guy, stop talking about Duncan and just do what you do. Be good and celebrate what you are. Know who you serve because serving everybody is serving nobody. And then the money will follow it. We've never had problems with the money. The money's always there for the right plan in a place. And um, I think we'll come to a day where people will realize how special small towns are and how powerful they are to be energized. That's so good. So good. And so after you had helped revitalize your own city, America started calling. And those are all those other towns that you're talking about. It's not like you set out to do that. You started getting these calls from people saying, I see what you're doing in Opelika. Can you come do that in my community in Midland, Texas or? Moments, Illinois or Alito, Illinois. Or, and it's interesting. People are calling us actually from all over the world. 
I'm coaching guys doing this in, you know, in different countries. I've got a call set up soon for a guy in Nigeria. We've got people. All, I mean, it's just all over because people are longing to see the places they live taken care of and loved. And love looks different. Love's the most expensive four-letter word you ever looked at. If you're going to love something, you're putting your bass boat and everything that means something to you up on the counter. It's going to cost you all of it. But love doesn't just cost you everything. It gives you everything. And so what does a place look like that's loved? Like, how do you know if a town is loved? I mean, how do you know somebody loves the plants on their porch? I mean, love's pretty apparent. I tell them, if you want to know if my wife's love, you just look at her face and love looks different. So true. It's uh, driving through a community. You can tell pretty quickly if it's been loved or not. But love is a transformative environment. You bring it back in, it'll just make stuff grow like crazy. I mean, maybe you're shoveling manure in there for a long time. That's good fertilizer. This will put some love back in there. Stuff will start growing. And so we believe that there's embedded value in these places all over the country and that we're really on the front of something amazing, which is saving small town America and doing it in such a way that we don't need any government subsidies or anything. This stuff makes sense. You can understand it. The performance makes sense. And we don't ask ourselves how much can we make. We ask ourselves how much should we make. We flip the whole script and bring alignment. We create a restaurant business. What we'll do is we'll bring them in. And we know that break even is important. Survive before you thrive. And so we get break even as low as we can. And then we share the revenue as a percentage-based lease. As they flourish, we flourish. And It can be many times over the normal rent you would get if you don't help the business flourish. So we see ourselves serving the entrepreneurs in the businesses and not just serving ourselves or serving the community. We serve them as they serve the community. We build a platform for enduring transformation in the community. It's incredible. It's incredible. Well, John, that allows us to segue into my favorite part of the show where I get to ask two questions. And actually today, this is not my favorite part of the show. That was just you and Ash being willing to be open with our listeners. But we're still going to segue into my two questions. The first is the question that everybody wants to know. And really, it's the question that I want to know. And that question is, you mentioned and Ash mentioned that there was this time you had actually gone to Promise Keepers and called Ash and said, please come home, please come home. So, and there was a story there. So share the rest of that story. I went there on this trip, didn't know anybody. These two guys sitting in the back of the bus. By the end of the night, they had been talked to and said, come by our room and see us, hang out a little bit. I went by there and they're walking around the dang underwear, whitey tighties. I thought, oh my goodness, this is a strange situation. I'm not used to this one. They were old football players. They didn't think anything about it. But I get in there and they start telling me about God's plan for crazy people. And they were right. And they just prayed with me and encouraged me and said, go tell your wife to come home. God reconciles marriages and there's hope for your marriage. And I said, really? And they're like, yeah, there is. And I said, well, you know, we're only three days from divorce when this thing, we're fighting for custody. We're already through the, in the system. And, uh, and I just had the faith at that moment to go and call her and say, would you please come home? And first I started it with my favorite question. I said, could I ask you to do something and you not say no? And she said, what's the question? I said, I want to answer first. She answered me. So I was able, by God's grace, to get her to come home. And proximity is powerful when you're hurting. And um, if you want to know what anyone wants, whether it's a rebellious child like I was, or if it's a rebellious spouse, what they most 
want and long for, they least deserve, which is praise. And so if you'll give them praise, you tell them they tie their shoe good, they'll be sticking, oh, stop saying that, that's stupid. Next thing you know, their shoe's stuck out from under the table. Everybody wants somebody to tell them they're valuable. And we got the biggest powerful weapon of all, that's our lips. And just start start saying good stuff. If you're seeing a bunch of bad, let's say they're 99% wrong, praise the 1%. So powerful, so true, not just at home, but also at work and gives us a great segue into my final question, John. And your story is a story about beauty from brokenness that is so apparent. You and Ash have done such an incredible job of investing in people and places and you do it through building couples and companies and communities. I mean, it's just absolutely incredible. And ultimately, I know it's because you want to have a front row seat to miracles. And uh, you've certainly seen those in your own lives. From our listeners, I'm sure there's somebody out there where either their marriage is absolutely hurting or their downtown is absolutely hurting. It has not been loved. They still love it, but it has not been loved the way that they desire What is the best course of action for people coming from either of those two camps? Well, if the words I've shared made your heart hum like a tuning fork, if I speak into your heart and not your head, then you need to contact us. Reach out to marshcollective.com or follow us on our podcast, Redemptification. So think if gentrification was redeemed, it would be redemptification. And so that's returning people and places to their intended beauty and glory. So reach out one of those and we'll try to add value to you. And if there's anything I could hope for you today is that one person would have hope today for something they didn't have hope for before they listened to this. John, this has been absolutely incredible. And for Ash as well, we're just so thankful that you were here with us today. (laughs) Thank you, my friend. I'm so glad we got to share with you. I hope it's always my hope that I say I'm a big farmer. I want to plant a lot of seeds. I'm hoping something pops up in somebody's life and that they would not think, I don't want to impress people. I want to empower them. There's a difference. And if we gave somebody hope today, and if they said, man, if God do that for them crazy people, he's bound to help me. Amen. I ain't that bad off. A lot of people always say that. I'm not that bad off. (laughs) I say, I know I'm poster child for idiots. I give hope to other people. I promised you listeners that you'd hear a story that is absolutely beyond the ordinary, and that is this. You are just hearing about this incredible hope, absolutely incredible hope. And John, we're so thankful you're here today. Ash, thankful that she was here today as well. And listeners, we are thankful you are here. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you right back here next week on Beyond the Ordinary. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Ordinary. This podcast is brought to you by Mammoth and produced by Reverb. If you like this show, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Mammoth and Beyond the Ordinary, visit us at mammoth.vc. Mammoth.